You're listening to Torah Classes with Rabbi Mendy Goldberg. This class is a recording from a live class. Good evening and welcome to Lesson 4 today. We're going to explore a little higher, taking another step forward in exploring Jewish mysticism. And for the last three weeks we've been talking about and learning about the faculties and the attributes of our soul, exploring its parallel in the Seder Shalshalos in the order of the fusion. And today, we'll introduce a new understanding of the human soul and reflecting a fascinating and probably an underexplored area in Seder Shalshalos in the order of the fusion. And let's start first with the following exercise. And you don't have to say your answers out loud. It's not a confession. And then in, uh, you'll find it exercise 4.1. And let's just, you know, for a matter of discussing it for a moment. I'm sure there are many people that describe themselves as not just a selfish person. There might be people who describe themselves as a selfish person. Or as both. There are some people who don't intend to hurt others. There are some people who feel that they'll do anything to achieve what they need to, whether it hurts others or not. But how many of these questions can you answer? Absolutely yes or absolutely no. Looking at these questions, and looking at the questions that you have, you find it difficult to give a definitive answer. So let's just take an example. Is it difficult for you to answer definitively you're not selfish? Is it difficult for you to answer definitively that you are selfish? Well, let's think about it. Why is it so difficult for us to answer yes to both of those answers, or note any of those answers. Or sometimes we answer both of them to yes, and it seems contradictory. How is that possible? Am I selfish or am I not selfish? And the bottom line is because human beings are very complex. We're complex human beings, complex creatures for that matter. On one hand, part of us aspires to be spiritual, altruistic, connected to God, but on the other hand, we have seemingly these selfish drives and instincts which seem so um, selfishly and self-interest driven. And the question is, what's going on under the hood of the human being that they seem so conflicted and pulled to both ways? You know, they say the story about the fellow who meets his friend and he sees he's down and gloomy. So he says, why are you so down? So he says, well, well, I got to tell you, my aunt passed away a few weeks ago, and she left me $40,000. She goes, yeah, that's a lot of money. He says, yeah, but a week ago, my uncle passed away, and he left me $80,000. She says, wow, that's seemingly doing great. Why are you so down in the room? He says, yeah, but my other uncle passed away, and he didn't leave me anything. <laughs> So we become so self-oriented, so self-involved, and seemingly we don't even realize sometimes. But on the other hand, 
We want to be and feeling this altruistic individual who wants to do things to be connected to God and ultimately inspired to keep on going better. So what's going on? And Kabbalah explains to me something very fascinating. That every single human, every single human being has in fact two souls. In the words of the Tanya chapter 1 and 2, text number 1 on page 112, Tanya says it as follows. The first of our souls originates in the non-holiness. This soul resides in our bloodstream to vitalize our body. It is the source of all negative character traits as well as those positive traits that come naturally to us, such as compassion, kindness. A Jew's second soul is an actual part of the transcendent God. The time over here tells us that we're made up of two souls. The first soul, it calls it the Nefesh Abahamis, the animal soul. No, it's not an animal soul that it has like the animal soul. It's a human soul, but it has animal-like tendencies. For example, what's an animal-like tendency? While it may be uniquely human, what's an animal-like tendency is survival of the fittest. I gotta survive. What's the most important thing for the animal? It needs to survive. And therefore, everything it does is for its physical needs. An animal has no spiritual component to it. So too, this animalistic soul, it all about is its own survival. Number two is gratification. An animal does things for self-gratification. I am happy. I'm excited. It makes me feel good. That's what I do. Nothing else matters. The animalistic soul is all about self-gratification. I do things because I like it. I do things because I want it. It desires anything that will continue to enhance my survival. My physical needs, even my lofty gratifications, are all about what I like. Doesn't make a difference about anything else. Like achievement, success. Now, the animal soul also has a lot of positive traits. It may be charitable, it may be kind, it may be compassionate. But all of these things are ultimately done only for themselves. So when it engages in, in a way of kindness, or when it engages in something to do good, even though somebody else may in extent benefit from it, but the ultimate reason of why it's doing it is because A, it may be naturally inclined to do so. That means a person is naturally a generous person. And for that times as well, the nefesh Bahamas, the animal soul is also called the nefesh hativis, the natural soul. And because it has that nature of kindness and it has that kindness oriented in it, so therefore it will do it. But why is it doing it? Bottom line, and that is a genuine act of altruism to help that individual only because of the expression of itself. It's the quintessence of the self-centeredness of an individual. What we would call the animal soul is the epitome of self-centeredness. It's all about me, self-oriented. And that's exactly <coughs> what an animal is. Anything an animal does is for self-gratification, self-orientation, doesn't do anything for anything else other than itself. Because it's only concerned with its um, self-interest, it will then rationalize every behavior, even a behavior which is immoral, even a behavior which is unethical. Because if the bottom line is that it equals me, I will find a justification to do it. If the bottom line is that it has to take care of myself, I will find a reason why I'm allowed to do it. 
This all comes from what we call the Nefesh Abahamis. It's the human soul that is self-oriented and therefore can trigger immoral behavior because of its self-justification. That's soul number one that we have. Soul number two that we have is known as the godly soul. The godly soul is unique, and it's called the Nefesh Elokis, its desires. And its desire is because it's a divine entity. The godly soul yearns to be closer to God and have a relationship with God. The godly soul has a, yearns and a desire to have a relationship with other souls. And therefore it wants to cultivate relationship and connectivity not only with God, but with other people as well that have a soul. Its mission and its desire to accomplish its mission that God has given it through Torah and Mitzvah because it understands when it follows through on its mission, it becomes closer and greater to God. And therefore, it focuses on not what it wants, but what it's needed for. Recognizing that it's here in this world for a mission for it to ultimately accomplish. We call this the nefesh elokis, the godly soul. The human soul that yearns for a closer relationship with God and to fulfill its divine mission. Now, if I have the godly soul, and I have the human soul, the, the animal soul, I ask you, which do you think is stronger? Anyone? Yeah, the animal, the soul. animal soul. Why the animal soul? Because I ask you, what you, can you slut? Who's stronger? You are an elephant. You are an ox. The animal is stronger. The animal is called the animal soul for the very fact because it is stronger. It can do more. It possesses more physical strength than humans do. And while humans may have superior cognitive abilities, that we can think, make choices, animals surpass us in terms of physical strength. And this is true as well for the animal soul. And for that reason, as you can see, the Kabbalah tells us, the previous Rebbe brings us in text number two, the ox's strength produces an abundance of crops. This is the same. The animal soul's drive is more potent than the godly soul's desire. Now, I don't need to prove this to anybody, but the greatest proof in the pudding is, if it's raining outside and you have a basketball game, you don't second guess if you're going. But if it's raining outside and you need to go to Minion, uh, maybe, uh, should I, you shouldn't die. Or if I need to go to a class and study Torah and I have them conflicted, which one to get? The baseball is on or the football is on and the class is on, you know which one is going to win. And that is because the animal soul is stronger. People have many different things that all different types of behaviors and different questions and always competition that there's a competing, um, there's competing souls for the hearts of the human being. The human being only has one heart, one set of legs, and constantly the animal soul versus the godly soul are competing over the hearts and the minds and the physical body of the individual. And many times, at least for myself, it's the animal soul that wins. The godly soul doesn't always win. And the proof of the pudding is, look, how many people show up to maybe a something which motivates the physical and animal soul to something versus that will cultivate and bring about their spiritual soul. No secret. There's a very famous story about a about the chassid of Shmuel Munkis. He was a chassid of the Alter Rebbe. And once many chassidim gathered together for a chassidic gathering, and they were, you know, people used to bring all different kinds of dishes and food, you know, potluck that they would be able to serve. And the butcher in town decided he was going to treat everybody for a special occasion. He was going to bring lung, 
some good roasted lump that he was bringing in a big dish, and he brings the pot. And as he brings the pot, Shmuel Munkus was known for his wit, and he was a little bit of a clown, was jumping around with the pot, and, you know, not letting anybody have, and he was dancing around with it and making some clowning around with it. Until some of the younger fellows who were really excited about this lump and wanted to have some, were getting frustrated that he's dancing around with it, and they tried grabbing it from him until he took the whole pot and dumped it into the garbage. Now everybody was furious with him. They were about to clobber him. What did he do? We were waiting. How often do we get such a delicious dish? Until while they were about to clobber him, the butcher comes running in. Don't eat the pot of soup. Don't eat the lung. Don't eat the lung. We found out it wasn't kosher. The animal wasn't kosher. They look at Shmuel Munkus and said, one second. You had some divine intuition that you knew this wasn't kosher, that you just poured it in the garbage. You just saved the soul from not eating non from eating non-kosher. He says, no, 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 no. I saw the passion and excitement that everybody had to eat this. I knew there was something wrong with it. I knew it was coming from the animal inclination, and I therefore, I got rid of it. The same idea what we're talking about here is that we look, that we see that the animal soul has that ability that is so much more robust to be able to get us and to be able to challenge us and to be able to force us to do certain things even though they're only self-interest. And there we don't realize that the spiritual matter and the godly soul is trying to get us connected to God. But God did, then he made that the opposite that we have, one human being, one heart, one set of legs, one mind, but with two souls. And therefore, wherever we learn about the souls and the garments of the soul throughout the previous parts of the class, the human soul we know, yearns for desire, and because of that contains ten attributes we know that the human soul has, and possesses three garments. All of these things are true with both of those souls. That means the animal soul has ten garments, has garments the way it expresses itself in ten spheroes, has those desires, and the godly soul. So we see that the godly and animal soul both have them. And as we discussed early in the previous lesson, the soul itself is tahoyrahi, it's pure. What soul is pure and only wants a divine relationship with God? That's only the godly soul. On the other hand, we have the soul's desire to live. And as we mentioned in the levels of beyond, the complete set of garments and so on, that the animal soul has as well which raises the following question that if we learned in the past three classes that every single one of our soul is reflected in Seder Hishtalshus in the order of diffusion why then do we need two souls? Not only that why do I need two souls? And how is it possible that one of my souls if it's part of the system of diffusion that comes from God that one of them are seemingly incompatible with the sanctity of godliness. It's pushing me to go to a football game and not to shul. If it comes from that system of diffusion, shouldn't it all be about God? How do I have an animal soul that has only a self-interest? How is that possible? How can the animal soul be my opponent? If it's a soul, if God put it into me, if it's part of the system of diffusion, if it has the ten spheros, Seemingly doesn't sound right. Where does this animal soul come from? What's it doing here? Is it a godly soul? 
Is it part of the godly soul? How does this reflect the godly soul? The godly soul we know is inherently more linked with the omnipresent, with the divine entity and the Tahirahim. And shouldn't the godly soul be the only thing that exists within the human being? Why is it that God gave us these two souls? So what we see over here, even more so, when we talk about the one that's stronger, how is it possible that the animal soul, which is seemingly the opponent to godliness, is stronger than the godly soul who's connected to godliness in its highest form? What's going on here? It seems like everything's upside down. I have an animal soul who's self-interest, seemingly disconnected, seemingly an opponent of God, and that's the stronger one. While the godly soul is pure in its holiest form, and that's the weaker one, doesn't have control. So to solve this dilemma, we have to take <coughs> a significant detour and get a better understanding of the Sirius. And in lesson two, we learned that God chose to manifest himself in the tenth Sefirot. And therefore, the world of Atsilus means close to God, and then each sphera emanates and going from world to world. But if you look at the map and as we have it here, the sphera are only half. You'll see how they're half full. What does that mean? And there's two different colors in each one of the spheres. Why does each sphere have a darker color and a lighter color? What is it telling us about the half of the spheres? And the Zohar, which is quoted, the Zohar in many different places, says the following statement. Text number three. The king is present within the ten attributes of Atsilut. He and his vessels are one in that world. He and his lights are one in that world. What is the Zohar telling us here? The Zohar over here is explaining to us something uniquely different that Axilus, which is the higher world, is different than the three lower worlds, called Bia. That in Axilus, the entirety of the vessels and the attributes are connected. They are one. What's he telling us? And to understand this, we have to go into a little bit of a side note to be able to understand two different variations of how God emanates into this world. And in the language of the Kabbalah, it is called light, orot, and kalim, which means vessels. What does it mean, orot and kalim? So, in practical words, orot, light, is the abstract energy behind any given reality, and the vessel is the structure that shapes that reality and executes it. Let's give a few examples. If I have a book, the idea is the orot, is the light. The words in the book are the kalim, is what executes the idea that I have in my mind, I then put in the words. A melody. I have emotions, I'm excited, and then I put it into musical notes. Every single business has a vision and there's a strategy that executes it. Relationships. A relationship is about love, then there's actions that I do to be able to express that love and cultivate that relationship. Let's talk about religion. As Jewish people, we have beliefs. But how do I know what my beliefs are? In the rituals that I do to express my beliefs. 
A book without words is not a book. It can be a wonderful idea. It's just a nonsensical blotch of ink. Once I put it into words, I then can execute whatever that idea is. So what Caleb do, what the vessels do, is actually make my idea, my random flash of wisdom, and bring it down into a concrete way that somebody can actually physically understand it. If two people are in love with one another, but there are no vessels for the love, for example, there's no interactions, there's no speaking, they don't see each other, it's a fantasy. It's not a relationship. And so with all the other examples that you can imagine, basically, Oros is that idea, while the Kalim, the vessels, are the what exam- executes it. What is this, how does this apply in the divine spirit? When God created the spirit and wanted that they should come into the world, what did God create? What did he make? He made the light. He made the energy. What's the difference between then the light and the vessels? And this is what we talk about the hands that are here. The Kabbalah explains that when God chose to emanate this infinite light, he projected ten energies. There should be an energy of chesed, an energy of gvura. All these things are energies. But that's what they are, energies. They really don't have any relationship with actually bringing something into the world. So let's take, for example, if God projects the concept of kindness. Okay, he can project the concept of kindness. But what is it, how does it relate? And how does it be executed? That you need a vessel to be able to hold it and to be able to bring it down into the next level. But one of the things unique about light is that when we talk about light, light has two factors in it. Number one, as we mentioned, light always has to be connected to its source. You can't have light. You turn off the light, there won't be light. Light is always connected to its source. And the other hand is, light also, you can see the connectivity to it, and you see its continuous, always desire to be connected to its source. So as much as there's an infinite light, then it has no relationship with anything finite. Even a light that God projects into the world, that he wants that it should be in a certain level of a sphere of chesed, gur, and tiferes, because the light has this constant desire to be connected with its source, What's its desire? It wants to be infinite. I was told to be finite? Doesn't care. It wants to be infinite. Only because there's a vessel that contains it and says, I'm going to take this infinite light, which is projected to be a sephira, and allow it to be it, and then execute it for it to be chesed. So what we have over here is, what the kalim, what the vessels are doing, they are projecting the energy that God put into each thing. Let's take, for example, you see a young child gets hurt. You have many ideas what to do. You can run over and pick the child up. You can call an ambulance. You can give him a bandage. You can give him a lolly. All these emotions are in your mind. There's chesed, there's gvura, tiferes. You can have all the emotions. But the one you actually do is the vessel that it's contained in, is how you execute it. What are you actually going to do? What are you going to actually show this child? Are you going to bring him a band-aid? Or are you going to call the ambulance? Or are you going to go and pick him up? You can have all the ideas, but they do nothing. You haven't helped the child until you actually put it into a vessel. 
The same idea, similar, that you have with the ten spherot. With the ten spherot, we talk about all the different levels that exist. And in Atsilus, they're entirely godly. They're one with God. The light and the vessels have no, sem no separate entity. Why? Because over there, the infinite light has such a desire to be connected to God that the vessels are also interrelated and connected to God. While in Biyah, in the three lower worlds, where there's already independence, what gives it the independence are those vessels that execute the energy. And for that reason, we have the infinity, the channels, the raw finite energy, and finally the vessels are the one that give it its place and make it of something actuality. So when we talk about the name lights, the infinite light, the transcendent light that we learned about in the different levels, of course those are in the levels of Atsilus, where there the vessels and the light are together, but then they too are only abstract, and only once they, once they come down into a vessel do they have and do they make that logical connection, so to speak, and they provide some type of structure. When the oros, when the lights are vested into the vessels, only then do we have an actualization of what is chesed, what is givura, what is teferis, it's no longer abstract. As in the words of the fifth Chabad Rebbe, he says as follows, text number 4a, the light itself is in a state of simple abstractness. The vessel imposes a definition of the light in the form of particular attributes of wisdom, kindness, and, forth, and so forth. Now the question is, why do I need both? Why do I need the divine energy and the vessel? Because again, the divine oros, the divine lights, are only energy. Without the vessel, I have no form. The vessels introduce that they're able to be applicable to something outside of that form. So for example, I can think I love my spouse as much as I want. And I can know that that idea is wonderful. But if I never expressed it, if I never did anything about it, what does it matter? So there's a sequence of letters, but if I don't put them into a certain idea, paragraph, word, what do those letters mean? Those letters mean nothing to me. So I need to take all the letters, instead of miscombobulating them, putting them into structured sentences and paragraphs, and only then do I have a proper book in a coherent way that I can read it. I can have all these different emotions, but if I don't express those emotions, and I don't put them into something, I need to be able to have that experience. So in order for the spheros, chesed, gvura, tiferes, in order for them to work, oros, the energy itself, is not going to do it. I need to have the containment, the structure, in order for it to be applicable, in order for it to work in tandem. Now I need them both to work in tandem. I need oros, I need the vessel, the light, the energy, and I need the vessel that contains them. In axilus, because there's a, such a high level of transcendent light, they're all one mixed. And as we walk into Biyah, Biyah, the three lower worlds, because they are in a lower level, meaning over there there's already created a level of independence, the vessels take on more of a mature fashion that they then create and we're able to identify the ten spheres. But then there's another important feature that Caleb introduced. We learned previously that in order for God that emanated from the spheros and in order to direct the concealed worlds and the revealed worlds. For example, 
that God has the attribute of chesed, and he wants to give kindness to whatever exists, then comes gevura, which is discipline, and only gives it to those people that deserve. Now, if we talk about or, or, which means light, light on its own doesn't have that capability of restriction. The definition of a vessel means container. I am containing it to be in a certain way. So when we talk about creations, the ability to create, a light transcends creation because it's a light all over the place. Think about, think about it this way. <coughs> if I have something, a great idea, an exceptional idea, it's an idea. If I don't actually articulate the idea or put it down on paper, what does the idea mean to me? Nothing. Feeling and appreciating and how great that idea is makes me only closer to the idea, not closer to the structure. So a light, by definition, because it always is connected with its source, it always wants to run up to its source. It always wants to transcend, not descend. That means light, by definition, take a candle. Take that example. I have a candle and I have a flame. In order for the wick to have the flame, in order for the flame to be able to be in the wick, to be able to have that flight, the wick and the flame need to agree that the wick is going to be consumed. That the wick is going to destroy, be destroyed. And only then can the flame hold the wick. If the flame says, I want to just go up to my source of fire up in heaven, would he have a fire or wouldn't have a fire? Because it's not connected with something that's holding it down, the container that's keeping it down here. The light is attracted to its source. Light, by definition, is attracted to its source. The same way when I have a great idea, I want to explore the idea deeper and deeper and deeper. But the deeper I go, the further I get away from reality. What does the vessel do? The vessel brings it back down. So if we want to talk about another objective of what Caleb, of what vessels do, is, the oiris, lights, only thinks of itself inward, thinks of how much greater it can get to its source, while the kalim, while the vessel, is what brings it outward, thinks about what is relatable. How am I going to make this work for the creation? Let's see it in text number 4b in the words of the fifth Chabad Rebbe. The lights of Atsilos, by their very nature, are abstract. They also aspire to return to their source and to become holy and subsumed with their sublime origin. Accordingly, they are far removed from creating the words of Bria, Yitzira, and Asiyah. Rather, the lights must first install themselves in the vessels of Atilus in order to energize the creation of the worlds. So light, by definition, wants to be created and connected with the source. What the vessels do is, may take it out of its source, make it outward, and give it the ability to create an independent world of Bria, Yitzira, and Asiyah, those different words. So what we have over here is, Oiris, which means lights, abstract divine energy that are closely tied to their source but are primed to produce divine attributes. Kalim, divine entities, definition and structure, define lights and channel them to lower levels as well. Now that we understand the Oiris and Kalim, let's go to the next step in understanding that a little further. It immediately becomes apparent that what do I need to have over here in order for, the, for it to work, in order for the system of diffusion and in order for God's transcendent light to come into this world, we need to have both. We need to have the iris, and we have to have the kalim, the light plus the vessels. 
and you need each of them to seemingly go against their natural inclination. Light, by definition, is abstract rather than defined. Light, by definition, has a desire to be with their source, wants to go up and not to come down. Caleb, on the other hand, don't sense their desire to be connected. They are independent entities. They are vessels on their own. And therefore, what's their interest? Only about what's happening below. Accordingly, what do they look like? These are two opposites. What I have in light is the opposite of vessels. What I have in vessels is the opposite of Caleb. And in order for it to work, to have the ten spheros, I need these two opposites to merge, to come as one. I need a combination of oires, of lights, in the vessels and to be contained by the vessels. Text number 4c. Lights and vessels are inherently opposite. The light by their very nature is abstract. They also aspire to return to their source and to become wholly subsumed with their sublime origin. By contrast, vessels are of the defined nature. They desire to retain their configuration and are naturally inclined to descend to lower realms. Okay? But in Axilus, what did we say before? In Axilus, they're one. How are they one? Why do they become one? If they're two opposites, if they're polar opposite, how do they become one? And here is why. They're entirely, text number 40. They're entirely submitted to God's intent for creation. Namely, that the universe should become an orderly habitat and not left in chaos. It's because when there's a singular mission, two opposites <coughs> are able to get rid of their pre- cognitive or preconceived notions of who they are, and they become one. Axilus is so great that it is able to take the light and the vessels and fuse them as one. Why? Because it's a, it is a core mission. Think of it this way. Suppose a person is in deep love and connection, but then he notices that the husband notices that the wife wants him to go out and get bagels. But if he goes out and gets bagels, what's going to happen? He's not going to be with his wife. But he was his wife. But he knows he needs to go out because that's part of the love. To follow what she wants. This is the same idea. The Oiris and the Kalim, the divine light and the vessels, are actually opposites. The divine light wants to be connected with on high. The vessels want to explore low. They don't connect. But because they recognize that there's a huge mission that they ought to be accomplishing, and they sense the desire, and therefore they submit to God's plan, similar to what we spoke about in the previous class, of angels on both sides. The two opposites come together because it's a divine plan that they have to bring into this world. So automatically now the iris, the light, and the chaos, though they are opposites, automatically collaborate against their natural inclination and do what their source, which is the divine light, wants them to do. So we've elaborated so far in the inner workings of Axilus and explaining how the iris and the chaos work because as we will see, that wasn't always the case. In Axilus cells, there were two editions. Second edition is where they're collaborating. But in the first edition, there was zero collaboration whatsoever. What does this mean? That what we've been discussing so far, where everything works harmoniously, and the light goes into the vessel, and the vessel contains it, and it explains, and it, and it takes the structure of the light, that's all in the second edition. 
but there was a first edition. Where do we see this first edition? Actually, in the book of Genesis, right in the opening of the book of Genesis. The first three verses of the book of Genesis tell us a wild idea. Listen to what it says. Read the words in the book of Genesis, text number five. In the beginning of God's creation of the heaven and the earth, the earth was chaotic and desolate. Darkness was on the surface of the deep. God's spirit hovered over the water. God said, let there be light, and there was light. Now read these words. What makes sense here? Probably the only thing is that he created heaven and earth, and he said, let there be light. What's this chaotic and desolate that water was hovering over the earth? What's this chaos that it's talking about? Now, if you look in every single uh, commentary on the Chumash, you'll notice in the first few verses, is probably half of the book is its commentary. But the Kabbalah explains and looks at this and understands this passage where God is actually playing out for us the system of the fusion. Seder Ishtalshas. And the verse is telling us as follows. Now look what the verse is telling us. Let there be light. What did we explain? What is the divine light? The light of Atsilus, the highest world. The emanation. It was desolate. Before there was Atsilus, before the divine light came, there was something called Tzimtzum, contraction, which we'll talk about next week a little deeper. Well, let's go a step further. What is it telling us here? It takes us a step further. The Torah is telling us, Rabbi Yitzhak Lori explains, and he says as follows. Text number six. What does desolate tell us? And what does it mean that the water was hovering over, the, the Spirit of God was hovering over the water? The earth was chaotic and desolate. Text number six. This refers to the breaking of the vessels. God's Spirit hovered over the waters. This refers to the lights that the vessels failed to absorb. Now what's going on here? What's this breaking of the vessels? What's he talking about? What does it even mean if it's non-material items that we explained? Unabsorbed light? What's he talking about? So before we explain what this is, we have to remember one thing is very important. When we talk about chaos, desolation, second edition, when God created the universe, there were no mistakes. Everything had a purpose and a reason, and God wanted a purposely to happen this way. It wasn't that he tried an experiment and a loop in its face as a scientific problem, and all of a sudden, he figured out to take plan two, plan B. That means everything has a function. So even the world of chaos, the world of contraction, the world, the first edition, so to speak, there's a purpose for it, and as we're going to see and learn about how that purpose came about. So now let's go back into what Rabbi Isaac Lurie explains. Text number 7a. The lights of Tohu were so intense and powerful that they intensely desired to be nullified and be subsumed with their emanating source. They had no sense of what the source wanted from them. As a result, they failed to deviate from their default nature for the sake of submitting to the greater purpose. He explains to us as follows. We know there's a divine light that came from God, the ten spheres. Right? The ten spheres come down. What's their next step? They have to emanate, transcend, come into the world, and then create those four worlds. 
But what happens if the light doesn't want to come into this world? Why? Because by definition, light is connected to its source. Infinite light has no interest in finite. So God creates these ten energies. And what was their desire? By definition, the desire is to connect higher, not to come into this world. By definition, their desire was not to go into the vessels. So what happens to them? What do I create? Chaos. Imagine, take for a moment. I have a bunch of ideas in my mind. But all those ideas, I have no interest in executing them. They want to remain part of my mind, part of my wishes. And I expect that because I wanted my mind to think, to walk, to talk, to eat, it should all happen. You think I'm crazy. Nothing's going to happen. Because in order for me to something happen, I have to take all those ideas, contract it, make it sense of it, articulate it, and do something about it. If I don't, I go here, why? The same idea is also those lights that God wants to come into this world. Those ten energies, those spirits that God wants and wanted to come into this world. They were so strong. And because they were so strong, there were no vessels that were able to contain them. They refused to become sephirot. They refused to become entities. They refused to become personal energies or divine energies to come into this world. What does it mean they refused? It's not like they had a choice. But light, by definition, is connected to its source. And what does light do? It always runs to be connected to its source. It doesn't want to be contained. The vessels weren't able to contain them. And because the vessels weren't able to contain them, what happens? They break. They explode. The vessels didn't want to serve the lights. The lights didn't want to serve the vessels. What were they missing? In the words of Kabbalah, they were missing bitl, self-nullification. They did not grasp the task was to create a universe. They didn't get that idea. And therefore, they were not collaborating. When they don't collaborate, they crash. The vessel wants to come down. The light wants to go up. So what's the vessel worth? It's a crash. doesn't work out. Let's see it in the words of the Kabbalah. Text number 7b. The vessels cannot contain the light because they were not sufficiently submissive to appear with the light's intense abstractness. They acted like a wick resistant to the flame. Result in the flame slipping away. If the wick says, I don't want to be burnt, can you have a fire? doesn't work. The flame goes up. You don't have a candle. The only reason why a candle works is because the wick is willing to be consumed. The only reason, the only way we can have vessels and lights collaborate with each other is when the light says, I'm going to go into the container, and the container says, I'm willing to accept it. But as long as they're fighting each other, the unhappy marriage between the divine lights and the divine vessels, each one wanted out, each one wanted their way. And therefore the lights went back to where it came from, and the vessels just stayed where they were. What happens when the vessels stay where they were? They break. There's no use for them. That's the words in the verse when it tells us, and this light slipped back to its source. The Ruach Elohim, Mirachefes, and the world was desolate. It was dark. Why was it dark? Because the divine light went back to its source. What's then the Spirit of God was hovering over the water? What's that? That's the vessels, seas being receptacles. Why? Because it was hovering. There was nothing that we were able to do for them. The Kabbalists call this 
Shviras HaKelim, the breaking of the vessels. Think of it this way. I ask you, I want you to make up a word for a definition of X. Okay, you make up the word. Then I say, okay, we're going to take away that definition. Does your word mean something? No, because you only made up the word for the definition. The moment I take away the definition, your word is meaningless. If vessels are only there to be able to receive light, and the light doesn't want to go into them, what is it worth? It's meaningless. They're standing there, useless. What do I have then? When I have broken vessels, three things happen. Number one, they were supposed to be a conduit for something. They no longer are. But there's still a conduit. That empty pipe is still there. Number two, they're no longer able to do it because they're broken. In the beginning, it was a vessel was able to contain something. Now that it's broken, it can't contain it. But think of it this way. But now that it's broken, every single one of those shards becomes its own entity. Until now, the vessel was one entity. The moment I break it, what do I have? A thousand different entities. The world of chaos is where I have these thousand entities, millions and infinite entities of vessels, all over the world, all over the divine atmosphere, talking about the chaotic way, where all these things are just lying around, doing nothing, so to speak. What are they? They're divine entities, ready for a vessel, independent. Remember what's a vessel? It's an independent, so to speak. Seemingly independent. Structure. It wants to explore. It wants to go out. It's self-centered. The opposite of light. Divine light is infinite. Wants to connect with its source. What's a vessel? It wants to structure. It wants to express. It wants to go down. In Kabbalah we call these Toyu, the world of chaos. In a system of chaos and Caleb vessels fa fail to sense what God's ultimate purpose for which they have been emanated. And because of that, the results in the lights returning to their source, they're leaving the vessels broken, which is Shvirasa Caleb, when the vessels long, no longer have a definition. The lights become stand-alone entities. What happens then after Tov? The world of chaos, they don't collaborate. So the world can't come into being, right? The world didn't come. So God has second edition. The second edition is called Tikkun. The word Tikkun literally means correction. It's a correction. There was chaos. The light and the vessels didn't match up. Now we're going to correct it. Now the light and the vessels are going to match up. What's the next verse that states? What does God say? Let there be light. What was that the light of? Atzilus. Atzilus was tikkun, was a correction. Where now, all of a sudden, the light and the vessels were realigned. There's a concept of self-nullification. The Caleb and the Oros now collaborate with one another. They're in sync with their divine mission, which is to create the universe, which is then to create Pia, and all works out well. So now we're in a system of tikkun, and in tikkun in order, the tikkun literally means correction, but it also means a world of order. We are at that point, what we have is that the second emanation of the spheros, causing the ten spheros to emanate from one world to the next in a system. So what we have over here is that the world was created in two stages, if you want to call it. The world of chaos and the world of order, correction. 
the addition of how the ten spheres emanated in the world, in a world of chaos, and then how it emanated in the world in a world of order. Now, as we mentioned earlier, it wasn't a mistake. That means it was a purpose. Everything was purposeful. When we study the concept of chaos, the common question is, why did God have to create chaos? If he knew a system that it can work out, if he knew that he can make that the vessels and the lights can collaborate, just start that way to begin with. Just start from Yehior, that there should be light. Why does God have to tell us in the Torah, and first there was chaos, and the vessels had to smash, and only then was he able to come with the light. <coughs> just start from the beginning. That's the second edition. It should be the ultimate edition. God doesn't make mistakes, but God purposely first made a world of chaos and only afterwards made a world of order and correction. And in the Seder Ishtalshus, the ultimate desire was that God should have it this way. And while, as we see as a result, the Oros return to their source, these ten broken Caleb, these ten broken vessels, remain in their place, that you still have the ten remote broken vessels, this is what God wanted all along, that we should have two different sources. Ultimately, these two are our expression of what we have today, the animal soul and the godly soul. The animal soul would be the chaotic soul, and the godly soul is the soul of order. Against this whole backdrop is why God has over here the animal soul gives us just one second. The animal soul gives us these experience that on our choices and our feelings today. Because as we mentioned, the Seder Ishtalshus, the order of the fusion, is what we relate to as it also in ourselves. So the very fact that God made that the world should be created in a way that there should be a chaotic world first is why we have in our own body and the chaotic soul, which is the animal soul. And only afterwards, the order of the divine light came in through the order of the correction, and that's the godly soul that has to correct it. So the four worlds came into being against the background of these Caleb, these divine broken vessels that are there. God then created the system of order of Atsilos, Dabriya, Yitzir, and Sia. But those Caleb, those vessels of Tohu, they're still hanging there in the background. They're still there, in a concealed way, of course. What they're there for, we'll soon get to see as well. But if we look and we can see, taking it a step further, in the human being, you can see how every human being is made up of the two levels of chaos and correction. Let's see it in te inside. Text number eight. We are comprised both of toyu and tikkun, chaos and correction. Our godly souls are products of tikkun and therefore inherently subservient to God. Our animal souls and bodies are products of our broken vessels, tohu. Although inanimate objects, plants, and animals are so linked with tohu, the concept of separation from God is far more pronounced than humans. That is because all other things cannot sin and therefore do not become completely separated from God. Humans, by contrast, on account of our bodies and animal souls, are capable of sin and consequently of becoming far more separated from God. The Altarev is telling us over here something very interesting. The very fact that we are two souls gives us the answer to why we have a chaotic and corrected world. The animals that are in the world come from the world of chaos. But at the same time, they don't sin. So you don't see it so pronounced in the, animal soul, in the animals that exist. But in the human being, because they have an ability 
and with the choice to, so to speak, to even separate, thinking that they're separate from God, where do you think you're separate from God? Only in a world of chaos. In a world of system, you can't be separate from God. So what has more pronounced in this world? Where do we see the most the world of chaos? In a human being who believes, so to speak, that he can rebel against God? Where does that come from? The world of chaos. Because in a world of system and order, your divine life and vessels are aligned. You have the self-nullification. In a world of chaos, the vessels are independent and the light's independent. So therefore, they can think they're independent as well. But if we look even a little deeper, and if we can see, take it a step further, our physical body, the way the animal soul and the godly soul fight over control of our body, or bia, is exactly the dimension of toyu and tikkun. We can trace it back to the chaotic world or the world of system, the world of order. How is that? Let's take an example. First of all, what came first? What was the first edition? The world of chaos. What came afterwards? The world of order was a correction. What comes first into our body? Our animal soul. Our animal soul comes into us when we're born. That's one of the reasons that a baby wakes up in the middle of the night, wants to eat, and couldn't care less about anybody else. It's selfish. It's the animal soul. It has no godly soul. A baby from day one and only as time goes on, a child matures. Why does it mature? Because the godly soul that enters into its body and enters fully at the bar mitzvah. It begins at the circumcision or by the naming, whatever it may be, but it slowly comes into the body. While the animal soul is there full force from the beginning. The world of chaos came first, the world of order and correction came afterwards, slowly entering into the system of Atsilos Priya Yitzir Let's take it another step. What is the animal soul? Self-centered. The godly soul? Selfless. What is the world of Toad, the world of chaos, was all about self-centeredness? The light wanted to go where it wanted to go, the vessels wanted to go where it wanted to go. What's the divine light, the world of order? Where they're synchronized. They think about the divine plan, not about themselves. The animal soul thinks about itself. The godly soul thinks about the plan. Deviation versus loyalty. Because one is self-centered, it deviates. I create excuses. The animal soul is all about what I need. World of chaos is all about what the vessels, what the lights need. I couldn't care less about what the plan is, and therefore, it deviates. And because it deviates, it's not mission-oriented. It doesn't focus on what they're here for. On contrast to the godly soul, is loyal to its mission, whether what I like it or not. Because it's not self-centered, it's selfless, it puts itself on God's desire is to create the universe, so too the godly soul looks at what its mission is in this world, regardless of its pleasures and desires from it. Broken vessels versus complete vessels. The world of chaos, what does it do? What drives the animal soul is meaningless letters. Meaning, the materialism life. The materialistic life comes and goes today, it's here, tomorrow it's gone. There's no real relationship in the materialistic world. It's a bunch of random incidents in life that people enjoy. For some whatever reason. And the enjoyment is only temporary. That's the world of chaos. It's something that's temporary. Something which is random. Meaningless. Broken vessels. While the world of tikkun and order 
is something that its existence is here for a purpose. There's meaning to it. There's alignment. There's purpose of how it comes out. And then finally, what was our first question? How is it possible that the animal soul should be so strong and the godly soul weakly? How is it possible that something that's connected to God should not have the strength to overcome it? But the animal soul should be able to be so strong that a 600-pound elephant, so to speak, to overcome the small, meek, godly soul is because what's the Torah coming from? Those strong lights is a divine energy that was so strong, it was powerful. It wasn't able to be contained, but it was powerful. It's coming from a strong energy. Mirroring that powerful light that was in the world of chaos, before it was contracted, before it was limited, that's the energy that divine animal soul was getting. <laughs> Versus the godly soul, comes from world of order, doesn't have that intensity. Only has that small line after how the world life was contracted to be able to contain itself into a vessel. So therefore it has a limited amount. While the animal soul is still getting from those broken vessels which are hovering over the water, getting that immense energy and therefore it has a stronger power to be able to influence and change. So what we see over here, in short, the answer is the purpose of the world of chaos was to enable the dynamic that a person has of having on one side a godly soul and on the other side the animal soul. To be able to have those two differences, that choice within ourselves, to be able to have that, so to speak, that sway from either side comes from the world of chaos to the world of order. If we would only have the world of correction, only the second edition, we will not have that animal soul within ourselves. In every step, of Ishtalshalus has a purpose. So again, what's wrong? Why do I need the animal soul? What's the purpose of the animal soul? So we said the world of chaos is so that I can have an animal soul. So if you want to say simplistically so a person can have free choice, fine. But why? Why don't we just bring this world to its completion? Why do we need to have that ability of the animal soul? What's the purpose of the broken vessels? What's the purpose of having these two conflicting souls? And probably there's something deeper that even the human being gains from having these two conflicting souls. <laughs> and Rabbi Isaac Luria the Arizal explains as follows. Text number nine. All of the mitzvahs are designed exclusively to purify the animal soul and the mortal body. By contrast, the divine soul does not require rectification. It has no intrinsic need to become installed within an animal soul or mortal body. The sole purpose for doing so is for the illuminate and to rectify. Understand this well. The reason of the soul descends to this world is to rectify and to purify. When we look at the world, everything that God gave us are tools for us to be able to purify and to change. The animal soul is the godly force which lost touch with itself because it doesn't have the divine light within itself. The reason why we are put into this world is because we have a power to be able to harness the animal soul and to make a difference and to change it. So when we look at the animal soul, don't look at the animal soul as the devil within you. On the contrary, the animal soul is the one that if it would only be exposed to a collaborative light, and see what it needs to do, it can be harnessed and actually utilized to help and to achieve and to propel the godly soul. The godly soul, the animal soul, is looking to be restored 
to its original setting, where it was in the divine light before the world of chaos. What happened was it just sprinkled and got lost touch with who it really is. The animal soul is there that when we harness the energy of the animal soul, we actually are bringing it back to its original state of being. So when God gave us the animal soul, he didn't give us a devil within us that causes us to be selfish and causes us to do all the bad things. Yes, that's the way it looked at on the outset. Because it's a broken vessel. That's the way it adapted to the world around it. But really, it's true being, it's core essence. It's a divine light, a divine energy, which comes from even a higher place, the world of chaos. How does that one rectify it? How do you go about it? This is what the mitzvahs were given to us for. Every single mitzvah that we do. What do we do? How do we do a mitzvah? The mitzvah God commands us to do with a physical being, with our materialistic self. When we take a penny, when we put money into charity, what are we doing? We're taking the animal soul, we're making a vessel, its purpose, and utilizing it for a godly and divine reason. And all of a sudden, these become no longer broken vessels, they become operational vessels. Because there are so many broken entities, right? We said, what's the concept of a broken vessel? That it created a bunch of new entities. All these new entities are now conduits, and new conduits to be able to bring divine energy into this world, if only harnessed properly. That's vessel talk. That's the antithesis of what chaos is all about. Chaos is broken vessels. The animal and the body are not talking, they're not communicating. A broken vessel means it's unwilling and not interested in becoming operational. Oops, I'm sorry. It's not willing and not interested in becoming operational. What we do is, Judaism gives us a mitzvah and says, take that broken vessel and use it for something and make it operational. Hasidus emphasizes this and says, where do we see this? Most when it comes to prayer. Here's a story, in text number 10, there was a story about a fellow. The previous Rebbe says a story about a fellow, his name was Gershon Ber. He was a very deep scholar of the Hasidism and Kabbalistic knowledge in a whole different way. But he was very, he kept his words very short. He never used to talk a lot. But something interesting he would always do was that he would always translate whatever he was dominating, every word in prayer, he would translate in Yiddish. That was the language that he spoke. So you would count the Omer and he would say, today is one day of the Omer in Yiddish. He would say, in every other mitzvah, he would always translate it in Yiddish. And one time he came to the rabbi of the city, whose name was Reperetzchein, who was the Rav of Neville and the later on of Chernigov. And he asked him the following halachi question. He says, what about in the parts of davening that one is not supposed to interrupt? Am I allowed to translate the words that I'm saying in the prayers into Yiddish? So Reperetz, who was also a great chassid, asked him and said, what do you need that for? So he says, my animal soul understands Yiddish better. <laughs> what was he actually saying here? Reb Gershon understood that the prayer wasn't only for the Hebrew-speaking only godly soul. The godly soul has its way of connecting to God, and of course the prayer helps it. But he also knew that the animal soul, which comes from a world of chaos, doesn't identify with godliness necessarily so equally, so online and so on target. And therefore he needs a way to be able to speak to his animal soul as well. And therefore when we talk about correction, the correction is not limited to only times when 
it's easy for us, or that rationale, or that experience, or spiritual experience is understood, but it's also in those times when the spiritual experience is not necessarily there. For example, text number 11. Do not assume that the only time we are close to God is while we are engaged in Torah study, prayer, and the performance of a mitzvah. And that we have turned away from God while engaged in earthly endeavors such as eating, drinking, and other needs. This is not the case. For we are instructed, know God in all your ways. We can connect to God in every endeavor. We have to engage in God in every single thing that we do in our life. And even in our lifestyle things, we have to remember that in everything we do, it's all the same letters and all the same way that we have to be able to put in. It's not whether we are engaging and saying, are we involving ourselves in materialistic things or selfish things. We have to remember that everything we engage in, the most physical item, whether it's business or whatever it is, we should infuse it with a godly and spiritual desire. And what do we do then? We now transform the animal soul into a godly soul. When we engage these activities, that we're taking the drive of the animal soul and transforming it into something that's spiritual. We can direct all our activities and make it for a higher purpose. And therefore, all of a sudden, what do we have now? Everything that God has given us, the physical, the spiritual, the animal soul, the godly soul, and all of a sudden, everything becomes for a spiritual purpose. We take the chaos that exists in the world and the order and utilize them together and channel into both the light and the vessels. The same idea is also when we're doing very mundane things, even if we go to work, the Rebbe once explained by if I bring him, your Rebbe always used to take like specific jobs that people had and show how they can be of service in Tashem. So the example that he gave once was an attorney. He says, you take an attorney. What's the attorney's job? The attorney's job is to be able to find the best for circumstance, the best defense for his client. Now that best defense for his client could be in either finding a flimsy case of the prosecution or to be able to find some reason of why this person should be justified in what he did. And therefore, the lawyer puts all his effort in finding a defense in the matter of this case. The same thing is also when we see another Jew. We should put all our attempt to be able to find the good, the good and the worthiness of our fellow Jew. Same idea is also, he gave an example once of an engineer. An engineer puts together this whole big complex machine. And there's thousands of screws and buttons and wires going all over the place. And one guy comes along and says, eh, this wire looks meaningless. Why? Because he doesn't understand the complexity of it. The same idea is also the metaphors in every mitzvah. Sometimes you say, yeah, this mitzvah, what's the big deal if I miss this one? But if we're not engineers, we don't understand the complexity and the detail and the purpose of every single mitzvah that may giving it us. It may look simple, but really it has a greater purpose than what it's there. What the Rebbe was approaching, what the Rebbe was conveying here is that in everything in our life we can find spirituality in it. Even in the most mundane aspect of our life, we need to look at any profession or whatever it may be and see where we can find the godly spirit in it and automatically find an empowering lesson from it. And what we've done is we've harnessed now that power, that drive of the animal inclination and we now energize it towards the godly inclination. So when God gives us and we take this approach, we automatically, what are we doing? We're harnessing the power of tohu and utilizing it for something good. Utilizing it for something for order, for system and correction. And when that happens, the animal force now joins forces with the godly force. 
Because the animal force wants to join the godly force. It only got lost. It got broken. It was seemingly not useful. But once we give a use to these broken vessels, we show them how they can also be tolerated, not only tolerated, but purposeful in a godly mission that are willing and more than interested to collaborate. In text number 12, the animal soul is tremendously powerful due to its lofty source. Consequently, although it has fallen far below, it continues to generate a greater passion than the godly soul can produce on its own. As we mentioned, Tohu, because it's chaos, therefore it has a such a much, it's stronger. It's coming from a greater divine light, from a closer place of godliness then the divine light has its own. So when we harness that power, when we take the animalistic enthusiasm, but use it for a holy purpose, then automatically the divine soul doesn't require any rectification. Automatically, it's used together, becomes ultimate goal, is that the two work in tandem. The result of, it, of this is, we have the true unity, harmonious, where both of them, it's not a longer a conflict in us, but on the contrary, it's a complement to one another. So we ask the question, number one, why do I need two souls? Why do I need a world of chaos? It's not because there's a constant chaos within my body. It's because God says, yes, that animal soul, it is there to harness, to give you the power for your godly soul to get it into greater places. So God gave us the animal soul as the engine and the power for the godly soul to get the godly soul to greater places where the animal soul is not able to reach on its own. There's a story told of the Chassid of the Alter Rebbe, the Chassid of the first Chabad Rebbe, that had a son who was a very educated individual, but because maybe of his education and he felt that he was so smart <coughs> and uh, really smart, and especially at the times that there was the intellectuals of the time he felt, which led him away, led him away from his Hasidic lifestyle and ultimately from his Jewish lifestyle. The Chassid then came to the Alter Rebbe and asked the Alter Rebbe if there's any way that the Alter Rebbe can talk to his son to get him back onto the Hasidic lifestyle, the Jewish lifestyle. The Alter Rebbe told him, tell your son to come here, to visit Liyajna. He finally persuaded his son to go visit the Alter Rebbe. And when he came to visit, he came on this big, beautiful, white, strong horse. Now, it was the custom, it was, it was known, at least the Hasidic custom, was not to ride a horse. They went in the wagon. They were not the ones riding the horse. The riding the horse was more the Kazakhs. The, the non-Jews was not, so to speak. So he came into town. Everybody sees this guy running into town on this big, beautiful white horse. And he comes into the Alter Rebbe. And he asked the Alter Rebbe, he said, how did, the Alter Rebbe asked him, how did you arrive? So he says, oh, I came by horseback. You can see my big, strong horse. I have it there. So the Alter Rebbe said, let me ask you a question. Your horse was very fast? He says, yeah, very fast, but I can get to my destination super quick, supercharged. I can go very quick. He says, yeah, you can get to your destination very quick. But what happens if you make a wrong turn? And the horse is going really fast. What happens? You also get off course, very far off course, because your horse is going very fast. The young man was not a stupid guy. And tells the Alter Rebbe, yeah, but when you realize that you're going the wrong way, you just turn the horse around, and you can go just as fast to get back on course. So the Alter Rebbe hears those words, and the Alter Rebbe goes, so when you realize, and he said a few times, so when you realize that you're off course, then you can get back on course very quickly. 
And he said that a few times until the young man began to understand what the Altarebbe was telling him. That his same passion and energy that brought him to going away from the Hasidic way of life because of his intellect and his understanding and his passion that he wanted, using that same energy can bring him back and harnessing it and using it for beautiful things and back to the Hasidic lifestyle. And with that, he, he went back and came back to the concept when you realize it's all about the realization. When we realize what we have, when we realize what we're about, and how we are able to serve Hashem, and then what we are, where we are, not only do we have the godly soul that helps us connect Hashem, God gave us the animal soul for a reason. And why we have the animal soul is to tame it and to sublime it. And all we need to do is realize the purpose of that horse, of the God, of the animal soul. And that's precisely what we did today, is to learn about, A, the godly soul's nature, which we knew that it's holy and pure. But today we learned about the animal soul's nature, that it actually comes from a greater and higher place than the godly soul, from a place of chaos. But it's there that we can harness it and give us the ability to correct it and bring harmony into the individual. What harmony is, when a person's able to utilize both the godly soul and the animal soul, for the divine purpose in bringing God into this world. Next week, we talk about the great concealment that we mentioned today, the contraction, in order to bring about the divine purpose into this world. Any questions? Yes? Um, I think information is going to come from the animal soul. It, it, it couldn't possibly come from...